0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Before we jump in, this is a huge week for us as a company. We are dropping our Speedgoat knife to be in stock full-time. This is something that, honestly, we've been trying for for a couple years. We gave this a shot last December, and honestly, it sold out incredibly fast. It was less than a month. All those knives were gone. Uh, We've been building up since then, and we're giving another shot. We've had the Blackfoot's in stock, and now we're adding the Speedgoat. Those are our two knives that are kind of our mainstay. Uh, I'm super stoked about this. I hope you guys will jump on Thursday night. Check that out. Pick up a speed goat. Now, you can get one anytime for friends, family, uh, for hunting season, um, any special occasion. So, very excited about that 7 o'clock Thursday night. This week, I've got Will Stelter. Uh, I'm stoked about this because, uh, you know, up until now when we've relaunched the podcast, we really haven't had any knife makers on. Uh, So, we're starting out with a great one. Will was a super young guy when he started, just as I was. Um, He lives over in Bozeman. He's a Montana guy, and he's very successful. He's got a big YouTube channel going on. He's a very talented knife maker. Uh, He's just a great human. He's one of the best people I know. Uh, He's a new journeyman knife maker in the American Bladesmith Society. Performed his uh, actual performance test here in my shop last year. Uh, Will's just an awesome guy, and I'm very stoked to have him. So, uh I'm, I'm looking forward to you guys getting to know more about him and uh honestly i hope to have will on a lot in the future because he's just a fun guy to talk to will stelter i'm glad to have you back on it's a kind of nice with with video and um just a lot of things have gone on in both of our lives since then so it's cool to kind of do a refresher um so will's a you, you, you live over in Bozeman. Mm-hmm. Um where where are you going? You cruising out to Washington or what?
1: Yeah, I'm headed headed out to Seattle. Yeah.
0: Okay. How's your dad doing? Uh he's doing better. He's Is it doing okay a lot better. talk about that on the podcast. Yeah,
1: it's alright. I haven't posted about it anywhere, but uh, he had a a giant cardiac arrest basically. Uh, and died for about 15 minutes and he's better
0: now. That's crazy. <laughs>
1: had a, had a open heart surgery and got a pig valve in him now, so
0: yeah. And that happened. Was he out in Washington when that happened? Yeah.
1: Thankfully he was in, in Bellevue and not in, uh, well, the middle of nowhere up in yeah. the horseshoe Hills.
0: Yeah. Where were you when that?
1: Uh, I was in, I was in Bozeman.
0: You were? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Jeez. Flew out later that day, spent nine days there. Um, uh, my brother flew up from San
0: Diego and, uh, yeah. <laughs> so he's recovering quite a bit, doing well.
1: Yeah. He's doing, he's doing a lot better. He, uh, he was having a real rough time after the surgery. He doesn't. He didn't want to take any like heavy, you know, bad drugs. Basically, yeah. yeah. And so dealing with the pain of like they sawed his breastbone open, and then he had like six or seven broken ribs from from CPR. Damn. Uh, so he was having a rough time breathing. But it sounds like he's he's doing a lot better.
0: Well, that's good. Yeah. Shit. Are you uh? Are you going out there? You usually go out there and um do some forging and uh. See knife makers out there? Are you going to do some of that, or is just just a family trip?
1: I think it's pretty much just a family trip. I'll, uh, I think I've got time to like swing by Blade Gallery, Daniel O'Malley's spot, and uh, I'm going to sell him that knife. And then, uh, yeah, but for so the most speaking part,
0: of <laughs> speaking of knives, so it's kind of cool because when since we relaunched the podcast, I haven't had any knife makers on yet. So, uh, I'm for people that are on Apple Podcast just listening right now, we apologize, but uh, Will's got. A chef's knife. So, what's, did you just finish this?
1: Yeah, just finished it the other day.
0: That thing is sexy. Thank you. Damn.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty, pretty stoked on it. It's my first knife out of that, uh, that Don Hansen W2, that old stock. Uh, yeah. Did I swing back through here when I had my pantograph on the back of my truck?
0: Yes. Okay. So, you don't ever come by without, I imagine right now, I haven't been outside, but there's probably like a 10,000 pound bandsaw in your. <laughs> Trailer or something.
1: Uh, Unfortunately, this time, not yet. But I mean, who knows? Maybe by the time I swing back through, I'll have something good. You'll
0: buy a trailer in Washington and haul something home.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So Josh lives kind of on my route of there. Montana is a bit of a a dry area for vintage and antique machinery. And so normally I have to go out to like the coast or something like that to pick up a machine. And I've been doing an awful lot of that in the last two years. And so I'll just stop back by and say hi on my way home. And yeah. usually there's something heavy and cool on the trailer.
0: So I'm holding this knife up kind of for the camera to see the profile and stuff of it. What's the wood on this? It's a Siamese rosewood. Siamese rosewood. And and you said that this is W2? Yeah. You can kind of see, see the hamon a little bit in there. Yeah.
1: So part of the reason why I blacked it out was because the... So W2 is a very shallow hardening steel, which is why you can get that cool hamon action. Yeah. Uh, well, you know that, but... Uh, so it has cool activity in like the middle of the blade, but the bolster was enough of a heat sink that it like totally watches out and looks super blobby around the bolster. Oh. And I didn't want to go through the process of like doing a crazy intense etching and polishing process to bring out the hamon for it to like look kind of gross near the bolster. So
0: what'd you do to block this out?
1: Uh, I just sandblasted it and then did uh, a long cold bluing and kind of washing process on it basically. But mostly it's just
0: cold blue. Should have brought over with it. Just Parkerized it. <laughs> right yeah here.
1: that 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 would have been nice. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, that's cool. It's beautiful. Thank you. I'm I'm really stoked on it. So is this going up for sale? Or are you putting this on like your site or Daniel buying it or?
1: Yeah. So I think Daniel's going to buy that one. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I owe him so much in my knife career, and I don't really have a a problem selling knives anymore, but. I like to be able to bring him knives every now and again. He bought my whole journeyman set. It's the last couple knives that he bought, and then before that, it had been like two or three years since he, had, uh, since I had sold him a knife. Yeah. So, uh, and he, he he taught me how to do chef's knives, and so that's
0: yeah. That's cool. So speaking of your journeyman, I mean we might as well cover that. So, what what month were you here when you tested for your the performance part? April, I think it was. I was like, say it's almost a year.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: Um, it, was, it was like
1: less than two months before I tested. So I think it was like uh, early April.
0: Yeah. So I think we had just started like stripping some dirt off or maybe digging a hole out here for this building. Yeah. And Will came over here and did the performance part. For people that don't know, if you're going to test for Journeyman or for Mastersmith, you have to go do a performance, the performance blade portion of that test in a Mastersmith shop. Um, I was lucky that Will decided to come here, which is super cool. Um, He did his performance test, passed that with flying colors. So I didn't really talk to you a lot since then about how it went in Atlanta. And and again, for people that don't know, what you do is you, once you pass that performance part, you take those, or you take five knives that you build, um, kind of your best work, and you take it to the Atlanta Blade Show, and you present those to a panel of judges, and they judge fit and finish and all that. Um, And that's a stressful, that's a stressful process. How how did that all go for you?
1: Yeah, so that actually, that went pretty good. I I gave myself two months to build my set, which... Uh, was unadvisable by most of the master smiths that I talked to. Yeah, uh, and then I spent the first six weeks of it working on one knife. Yeah, <laughs> um, and then I whipped out five other knives along with two more or three more to bring <laughs> the blade show. I,
0: I, it's funny because I I think I've I don't know if I know anybody. Well, I know a few, but I mean, it seems like even people that start six months early are they always seem to be working on a knife the last week before the show. Like, it doesn't matter. They make five. They think they're good. And then, like, a month later, they're like, well, I don't like this one. So then they start something new. And then pretty soon, or they tear a handle off of something. And yeah, I remember Wade Coulter hand sanding. I think it was his Mastersmith set. He was hand sanding a handle in the hotel room the night before he tested. Yep. And everyone was like, Wade, you're going to screw those up. Like, just stop.
1: (laughs) I, uh. That, so I brought with me, knowing that that sort of thing happens, uh, I called it an oh shit kit. So like a little mini clamp on bench vice, sanding sticks, sandpaper, everything that I could imagine that I would maybe need to like get get myself or someone else sorted out. And one of my friends flew down from, I think he lives in Massachusetts, uh, and he had sent his stuff down in a gun case, didn't ship a gun with it, so they were able to open it up. And he had, like, had them all, like, triple-wrapped and a big note on top that said, like, these knives are headed to exhibition. Please do not touch. And what's the first thing that he sees when he opens it up is a big old thumbprint right in the middle of his blade.
0: Of a carbon steel blade. And that's the thing. You're not testing with any of these knives with stainless steel. So... Uh, Some of that carbon seal, especially when it's hand rubbed out and stuff like that, you just look at it cross-eyed and it gets a mark on it.
1: Yeah, it's just the worst. Yeah. Um, uh, And so he was sanding that, like the morning of, like 15 minutes before he walked over, uh, had a a knife maker sit in a chair, clamped the vise onto the chair, and then he sat and sanded it out and he passed. Oh, wow. yeah, I know Niels Vandenberg was uh, hand sanding one of his handles on the plane <laughs> on his way over <laughs> yeah. from South Africa <laughs> for his master smith.
0: Well, that's funny. Yeah,
1: but uh, no, it, it went great. Um, I did something a little bit different. I hadn't seen it before. I made all of my knives look like a set. And so uh, they all had uh, 954 aluminum bronze guards or integral bolsters uh, and then African blackwood and kind of a similar theme in the shape of the handle. It's kind of kind of similar to that, that chef's knife. It's a little bit of a progression in the last year. Uh, and so that was that was pretty cool because now my my JS set looks like a real set. And That's so cool. I'm, That's I'm really pr- cool. Pretty happy I did. Did you that. get any
0: feedback? Did they tell you anything like work on this or that or so? Pretty much just say good job.
1: So the only thing so I saw something, uh, m- like the, I guess it was probably Thursday. So testing is on Friday morning. Thursday afternoon I was walking around, uh, and the lighting at Atlanta is like. 35 or 40 foot tall ceilings with white and yellow lights up above. And it is quite possibly the worst lighting that you could possibly have to look at a knife in.
0: Yeah. Kind of typical hotel, like ballroom kind of like find a like drink in, but
1: (laughs) it's like dim, dim, but also shows off every single flaw without making anything look good somehow. Yeah. It's amazing that anyone buys any knives at Blade Show. No shit. Because <laughs> they all look so bad in this light. <laughs> and so what I, I, I have uh, three LED panels above my bench, uh, overhead lighting, and I checked all my blades in the sun. And I didn't see anything wrong with them. And then I get into this lighting, and I'm waving this giant, it's got a 12-inch blade buoy around, And I see a like divot in the blade, and it was from my waterfall platen that I used to cut in my plunges. Yeah, uh, just left literally the smallest divot. Again, I was that's the knife that I spent six weeks on, so I was. Well, when you say
0: divot, I mean people got to understand when what you're referring to as a divot is like.
1: Probably less than a thousandth of an
0: inch. Oh, way less. Yeah, way less. Like it's just a like a weird shadow. But the way the light reflects across the blade, like it's it's hard to explain because it's like way way less than a thousandths.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, I hand sanded it with a dead flat brass bar, and so I know that and and I disk sanded that blade. Right. And but somehow still, it was there was enough of like a. I don't know. I'll call it a divot, but it's not really a divot because if you were to hold something dead flat on it, you wouldn't be able to see it. But right. when you have the yellow, white, and black spaces from the lighting up above, it popped out like, like I felt so dumb for having not seen it. And I was like, well, hold on. I I was trying pretty hard on this one to make sure that it was going to be absolutely perfect. And so I, I don't feel that bad for not having seen it because I did everything in my power with... The tools that I have, which are, I mean, I have a pretty good lighting setup, and so the fact that I didn't see it, I was kind of yeah. bummed out. But then, thankfully, in the judging room at the uh, for the, for the JS test, the lighting was way better, and so you, was you
0: totally couldn't see it. Oh, that's good. Yeah, um, but no, we, I, we we always used to tell Rick Dunkerley because his first shop there in Lincoln was like it was a barn. Yeah, like literally, yeah, like a shop slash barn with a tractor parked in it. And we were like, man, as nice as your knives are, like, imagine if you made them in the daylight. <laughs> imagine how nice of a job you could do if you could actually see what you're working on. Oh, and man. I noticed he's building his new shop right now. Is he building another one? Yeah, because he moved out to Pennsylvania. What? <laughs> yeah. I did know that. CNN breaking news. So is he not having his hammer in this year? Uh, No, he sold that place. Oh, he's gone, gone. Yeah. So... Yeah, he lived out. He moved out there to be closer to his dad. I think his dad's kind of failing, and so he moved out there to be a little closer. And, Dang. Um. Yeah. So. Uh. Anyway, but I noticed he put up pictures on Facebook or Instagram or something yesterday, and it looks like he has an LED light about every thirty inches. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's
1: so nice to work in a well lit shop. It makes such a big difference. Yeah, I I generally I actually for filming because I do you know videos pretty much full-time. Mm-hmm. I you kinda, have an OnlyFans, right? Is that yeah, right? Something like that, basically. Yeah. It's like the bladesmithing
0: Feet version. Feet pictures. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God. I, I'll refrain. That's because <laughs> Will looks like he's under 18. So.
1: <laughs> oh, there is a certain demographic that I think really enjoys my yeah. videos because of that. <laughs> I've, I've gotten uh, some messages. That's creepy. Oh, it's so bad. Yeah. it's You never expect... You know, I never thought that as a 14 year old that first off I would go into doing video content and then that from that there would be a subsection of middle-aged men who would be very attracted to it.
0: Yeah, um, that's odd.
1: I, I, it, I, in the last couple of years, it's probably been less than a dozen messages, yeah. but a dozen messages from middle-aged men who are attracted to you is not my favorite thing.
0: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so you, it's almost when you want to start buying a fake beard and wearing it on your videos.
1: Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Oh my gosh! But uh, oh, anyway, I I, I generally kind of light my shop very moodily, like I have uh, kind of pinpoint LEDs set up to give things kind of aggressive shadows and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but it's not nearly as nice to work in. It kind of gives it a different ambiance, I suppose. Uh, which some like for hand sanding a blade, it's kind of nice to like be able to sit in the shop and have it be like kind of moody and like play some some good you know old country or something like that. But. Yeah. Uh, I think it affects honestly, I think it affects your mood while you're working. I think that like the uh the ambiance of the space that you're in affects I don't know if it affects how the product comes out, but it affects your your headspace, which I guess in turn probably affects how the product comes out. No,
0: I I I totally believe in that. And actually it's it's part of why like <clears throat> I'm so adamant about our shop like downstairs stay, staying so clean, being well lit, mm-hmm. things being organized because I think it I I even when I was just a custom maker when my shop was a disaster and just a total shithole, um, which they all get to be, like you just keep piling things and piling and it's like a a combination of like personal belongings piling up in your shop and then just like, just you're busy working on projects and you keep setting files aside and sandpaper and then all of a sudden it's like something in my mind, like something snaps. And it's like, I have to clean up right now. (laughs) Yeah. Because like, I'm going to go I'm going to go bonkers if I have to work in here another hour.
1: You can't put anything down on your workbench? Yeah, or find I'd, anything. Oh, my gosh. Right? My, my bench is an absolute disaster right now. Between, uh, like, the long road trip that I just took and then, like, trying to work on projects in between, there's probably, like, three inches of stuff on my bench before you, like, actually get, get, get down yeah. to the, the, t- the workbench top.
0: Yeah, when you take that time, I, I've always felt like when you take that, like, whole entire Saturday and Sunday to, like, mm-hmm. clean, put away, vacuum... And, like, Monday morning you walk in there to work, I just feel like it's just you're just a different person. So
1: nice. Yeah. Yeah. Even, like, having a swept floor makes such a big difference because it's so easy to let dust pile up in in shops. My my grinding room is atrocious. (laughs) I think I've swept it up, like, three times in the last two years.
0: Yeah. It's not good. Yeah, you need to have events once in a while because it forces you to, like, I would always do my deepest cleans before I'd have my hammer-ins, you know. (laughs) And then you find stuff like, oh, I've been looking for that. Like, I, I lost two lav mics in my shop in the last, like,
1: six months. <laughs> Gone.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's it's one thing, too, like, with us, with having employees, it kind of sets a standard, and I think it, it sets an expectation of, of cleanliness, and, and that goes into the knives and the work you're doing and being proud of. Like, if people are just throwing stuff around and you're not proud of your space you're in, then are you – are you is does it seem like you're also proud of the work that you do and it's it's one thing for a dirty person to adjust to cleanliness but like if we have 20 employees working in there and 10 are naturally super clean and organized but you keep it a dungeon mm-hmm. then it's going to be miserable for those 10 like it's 100%. always easier for a dirty person to adjust to a clean atmosphere
1: 100 yeah and and if you have multiple people working in the same space everyone needs to be able to find, I mean, obviously people have their own workstations and whatnot, but there needs to be a level of order that, uh, you know, you can go and find a tool at someone else's bench or.
0: Yeah. uh, And they really don't like here. That's actually one thing that's kind of part of the like lean processing model Yeah, is anyone can go to any, any station. Yeah. And when you shut down, like you should be able to start another shift or, you know, you call in sick tomorrow. Um, everything should always be dialed in all the time and you have the same tools and that's more in a manufacturing process, obviously than like custom making, but, no. um, yeah, it's, it just makes things much more efficient. Totally. No. For sure. So you mentioned your videos, uh, you know, you, you've got a big YouTube channel, like a big following. And and when I first met, uh, when I first met you and, uh, and you were working with Alex Steele, mm-hmm. um, what was his YouTube channel called? Just Alex Steele. Just Alex Steele. Yeah. Uh, that's actually where I met Niels Vandenberg because Niels was here from South Africa working with you two on a project. Mm-hmm. Um, and for people that don't know, when you first moved out here, and we should probably cover a little bit of that because this podcast probably gets seen a little bit more than the first one. But um, well, yeah, let's, let's actually step back on that. Let's look at me. I'm, this is how Joe Rogan does it. <laughs> you know, really fumble around and get to my point. Uh, so you grew up in Washington, right? Um, and and how did you get into making knives? Was it through just internet videos? Pretty
1: much. There was like a few different things that happened that I like. Uh, I think the first metal working that I ever saw was at a, basically CNC, a medical CNC facility. And so they machined out titanium pieces that, you know, stick people's bones back together. And I was like, holy smokes, you can do that to metal? what? Uh, and it was, it was just a, it was just a school trip for, for wood shop. Uh, our teacher just wanted us to see that, you know, there's other manufacturing and, and other ways you can make things not out of wood. And, uh, and so from there I talked to the guy, I was like, Hey, if I designed a knife, could you guys make it? And he was like, Oh yeah, we could do that. And I was like, Oh, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> and so I spent a lot of time, you know, starting to draw knives on graph paper and whatnot, and it never came to fruition. I never. For whatever reason, I don't remember. Uh, it just didn't work out. But I was probably twelve at the time, and so over then the next like two years or so, I just started watching YouTube videos, and uh, that was about it. Honestly, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot. Like I didn't I didn't find any books about it or anything like that. It was all pretty much videos, and there wasn't that many people who were making knife making videos. Like nowadays, if you look up how to make a knife, there's like eight hundred different. Oh yeah just 101 how to make a knife probably more than that actually
0: uh it's actually funny we went from not enough information on how to do something to to to, too much like people people message me all the time asking about where they can take a course where they can watch a video and I always kind of am like well check out Jason Knight's stuff or something but like because I don't know I mean there's just so much content out there
1: yeah it's It's easy to, like, get lost in... There's a lot of bad information out there. Yeah. Generally, there's nothing, like, too bad. Generally, what it is is I think people uh, putting out their perspective as fact. Right. Which makes things way more confusing. Uh, So I think that that it's it's hard to weed through that if you don't have a, like, wide base and frame of reference for, you know, knife making
0: and whatnot. It does kind of show a difference in our ages because... We both started making knives. at, you know, I was eleven or you were eleven or twelve. Um, but when I started making knives, there was no internet. <laughs> light
1: period. up, light up the old whale oil lamp and hammer yeah, out a few with a knives with a next a Feather to pen, exactly.
0: Design a knife with my feather <laughs> pen. Yeah. Uh, so you got you got pretty serious in high school then into like making them.
1: Yeah. So I f- from about fourteen. Uh, so when I was when I was 14, I got a one by 30 belt grinder uh, for Christmas and then, like, a little drill press and an angle grinder, stuff like that. And so I made my first knife then. Made it out of 1080. I heat-treated it by heating it up to about a gray temper and then putting it in vegetable oil, which, if you guys aren't knife makers here, uh, that does nothing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, literally nothing. <laughs> um, and so uh, that, yeah. It also, the bevel on it, I ground on the slack belt of the 1x30 because I didn't like the chatter that I felt on the platen. It's a and nice so,
0: little bull-nosed knife. Oh,
1: my goodness. Yeah. The axe hanging on the wall behind you, I guarantee, is a lot sharper and has thinner geometry. Yeah. So I kind of did that for about two years, just fussed around, didn't make anything that actually worked at all. And then when I was 16, I built a little soup can forge. Uh, just literally... a soup can with some caol wool, a little satanite inside there, and that kind of magnified or reflected the heat of my torch, and I was able to start actually hardening things, and it was just all downhill from there. I made my first usable knife. I could cut things with it, and the edge didn't roll over, which was amazing. I met Salem Straub and Daniel O'Malley, who were kind of my two biggest mentors in knife making, and uh, it kind of took over my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, I stopped going to high school, uh, not in a bad sense I, I instead went to running start in Washington so I was going to a community college or I guess it's a not a community college anymore a technical college full-time which meant that I only had like 10 hours of class a week which was fantastic because I figured out that I could do my school work and not do my homework and still get a passing grade which means that I only had cl- or I only had to do school for like 15 hours a week. I'd still do my, like, big assignments. Do, and do
0: you still end up with a diploma there, or is it, like, a GED?
1: So, I graduated, like, two credits shy of an associate's, because I went full-time for two years, and I graduated, and, you know, it fulfilled all my high school graduation oh, wow. requirements
0: as well. So, so, you don't even have a high school diploma. It's more of just, like, a col- I, I do. College. Um, well, it's not really a college degree either, I guess. It's close. So,
1: the college classes fulfilled the high school class requirements as well. And so... I graduated high school. I just... uh, What a loser. (laughs) And and then I... And again, it followed Josh's footsteps and went to MSU and then dropped out. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) That's... It seems like to become any great knife maker, you have to go to college and drop out.
1: Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So then... So I was... As soon as I turned 18, I was getting what I thought was you know pretty decent at knife making. Uh, Moved to Montana. Moved my shop over here. I was thinking about it the other day. The lightest machine in my shop that has a motor on it is heavier than the whole shop that I moved over yeah. <laughs> uh, from Seattle to, to Bozeman. That's funny. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So
0: that, and that's about the time you had, you had contacted me. I think you had reached out through social or something. And then a while later um, when you were moving out here, right. Is when uh, we've right. Actually you had, you already been here.
1: I, I had been there for, I think I had been in Montana for about a year. I want to yeah. say, I think one of those times I had messaged you and I got no response because you're a famous master Smith, yeah. Josh Smith. Uh, yeah. and then like all of a sudden, I think I was doing a live stream or something, hand sanding on a project after I, I at that point, Alec had moved here from England and, uh, And I think I had been working with him for a couple months or something like that. And I was working on a project after our eight hour day of work and you like hopped on the live stream and started like giving me shit all of a sudden. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, hold on. What? Uh, So that was, that was pretty funny. And then basically I think the next time that I was driving through, I think I'd spent the night here. Yeah. And I remember it very vividly. You were like, Oh, it'll be great because uh, you won't be driving while you're tired. You get a little bit more sleep. It'll be awesome. Um, and then we ended up talking for like six hours. Stayed <laughs> up got, half the night. Yeah, I got way, got way less sleep than if I had just driven through. But the main topic of conversation was you, you were like, I think I want to start a production knife company. Yeah. Uh, and like I had done the smallest possible amount of like diving into that world. Uh, and so we talked about it for a long time.
0: Yeah, back then. Um, well, it was a little while after that that I'd come to Bozeman when Niels was there. That was probably a couple years later.
1: I think it was... Wasn't it? Well, Niels was here in 2019, I think. Yeah. So. Cause it was pre COVID yeah. and it was right before dunks hammer in. And so I think that I had stopped sometime in the winter and I think that it was like, uh, May.
0: Yeah. Cause I had, um, I actually had a couple of prototypes that I showed you guys and you guys were working on a chef's knife project. Niels was actually ramping up more at what he was doing oh. over in South Africa. And I was telling them about what I was going to try to do, but I was also trying to like ask a bunch of questions because I had no idea that was that was 2019 because I had no idea what I, like how I was going to do it.
1: Was that the? Did you have the the like first Blackfoots yep. there?
0: Was that it? Was that uh... they were out in my car? Yeah, and I showed Neil's. That's and I think wild. I showed you guys a couple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd had a couple that I just hand ground. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how fast like how fast shit changes. <laughs> That's um. Insane. Yeah, and so you came to Montana, and you started working with Alec Steele. Alec was pretty known on YouTube with everything that he was doing. Yeah. Um, And you guys became like this kind of dynamic duo for a while. Pretty much, yeah. Um, Which was cool. I mean, when you say I big-timed you on social media, it was most likely because I didn't know how to check my DMs. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. Because I remember... uh, like, watching what you guys were doing on YouTube, even when I came into Alex's shop, I was like, how are you guys, like, filming all this stuff, you know? And, like, how do you edit it? And, like, asking all these questions. It was just wild to me um, how that whole process worked. But, I mean, God, the amount of views you guys were getting and mm-hmm. and uh, and you still get. Like, I still, well, I had to fake it and go hire Henry. <laughs> Um, you guys actually know what you're doing. I just have to hire Henry and look like I know what I'm doing, but
1: I, I have my own Henry for doing the actual, I can point a camera at myself and, and that's about it. And I have, uh, my buddy Isaiah is my, my videographer and he's freaking awesome. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really bad at the technology side of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So,
0: uh, you, wh- what year did you branch off then from Alec? Cause Alec moved back to England. Yep. Um, and you kind of busted off on your own and uh, bought your own piece of property, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So,
1: Um, uh, the beginning, so January 1st, 2021 was my first day uh, back by myself.
0: Yeah. And it seems like you spent about the first year just tearing your shop apart and hauling giant pieces of equipment in.
1: That's exactly right. And I've, I've slowed down a little bit, but not like, not that much. My shop is, so it's, it's 1800 or 1900 square feet. It's like 1870, I think. Uh, and It was empty. I moved in with a 25-pound little giant, an anvil, a forge, a belt grinder, and now the shop is completely full. Yeah. 100% full. I don't know how many thousands of pounds of cast iron machinery I have in there.
0: Well, you, I mean, you spent a bunch of time, if I remember right, like jackhammering concrete out, and you had to pour a new foundation for a hammer. Yep, yeah. How big is that hammer? It's a 400-pound ram. So when they say, okay. 400-pound hammer. Doesn't sound that big to me. <laughs> How big is that hammer really? What's it weigh? weighs 8,500 pounds. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and it hits 200, or, uh, yeah, 200 hits per minute.
0: Will will never be allowed to live in a subdivision. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah, that hammer, things break in my shop constantly because you can't put anything on the shelf because of it. it, it I mean, even with an isolated four-yard of concrete base, which is... Five foot by seven foot by forty inches down, so it's something like sixteen thousand pounds of concrete. It rattles the whole shop, and it is awesome.
0: Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. how How close is that? Sh- is your shop to your house? Like a hundred yards or so. So does it rattle it pretty good inside? You in know,
1: it actually it does it. You don't feel it at the house too much. Uh, the The bedrock situation. I had to chisel through a lot of rock to get to you know forty inches down. Yeah. And I, I would assume that that would help, uh, from, from what I can tell, that would be the reason. Cause Salem Straub over in Washington, he's got a 300 pound hammer and you can feel it at his house. And it's not quite, his shop isn't quite as far away, but you can definitely feel the like,
0: yeah, I don't know if they can hear that, but I was thumping on the table. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we're back to your YouTube now. So that's, that's mainly, are you making a living mainly off of YouTube or you, you, I mean, cause you're making some knives as well here and selling them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, you're pretty much your YouTube is your income, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's how, the, does that, how does that work? How do you make a living off of, off of YouTube?
1: So there's kind of like, there's kind of two main revenue sources. There's Google AdSense, uh, which is generally not too amazing. It started off being really good. It started off being, well, really good. Uh, started off being about $2000 a video that I was getting from AdSense and then uh, that's kind of gone downhill it's kind of gone to like half that or a third even depending on the video they kind of monetize it selectively it's it's a funky situation that I don't fully understand it's kind of fickle and then uh, the other part is having sponsors so ad read sponsors people will email in i've got my email in the in the YouTube bio or whatever and companies will email in and say hey like Athletic Greens wants to sponsor an episode for, you know, X amount. Um, And, uh, and then they'll send over the product uh, film using the product or, you know, eating it or, you know, talking about it, whatever it is. Yeah. And then, uh, and then read, they'll send over like a brief of the points that they want talked about. You talk about your experience with it and, and then send it off to them to make sure that they approve it. Uh, So that's, probably the most frustrating part of making videos because we're a little bit better at it now. But like if you say one thing wrong, like you say backslash rather than forward slash in in reading out the URL or something stupid like that, you say the code wrong, they change the code. There's all sorts of little things that can go wrong. Um, It's probably, probably the most. And and then you have to like redo it. So uh, we have to, you know, spend like at least an extra day, you know, getting it filmed Editing it back in stuff like that.
0: Do they? Do you have to have kind of an agent help you with that stuff, or do you pretty much handle it all yourself?
1: Uh, I used to handle all myself. Now I have Isaiah do it because it's mostly emailing, and I can't stand it.
0: Yeah, that's that because you dropped out of high school. Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. Just, I mean, one key at a time <laughs> takes a minute, but uh, no, that's 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 kind of how it works. I had, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. I uh, I filmed one recently. I have a sponsor called Factor, and they send like. You know, ready to go meals that are aren't aren't ever frozen and they're like they're pretty good. Um, especially like if you don't have time to cook or you don't have you know family around who are who are making. Wait, meals. are we
0: are you advertising right now? What's going on here? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm just saying they're
1: they're 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 fine. They're like I would probably rather cook a meal, but I don't, sometimes don't have time. So whatever. Yeah. yeah. I so I I did a uh, <laughs> I did a. Put, put a shot in the video. I didn't see it was there until after Isaiah had already sent it off for approval, but I like take a bite of the meal and like give a thumbs up. And in the background in my living room is a AR on a tripod pointing out the window. Oh my God. And they like, totally didn't notice. Uh, they, they didn't? No, they didn't. The bunch of people who watched the video were like, Hey, why is there a gun in your living room? Cause, I'm, cause I, don't, I don't, I don't, really talk right, about guns. Right, Cause gun not stuff. every,
0: not everybody lives in Montana. Exactly.
1: It's, super funny
0: um people that watch even like our videos people that watch stuff man they watch close yeah you know i'll get messages like on my instagram and stuff um it's actually amazing how what people notice
1: it's kind of annoying sometimes (laughs) yeah because then they also think that they're getting the whole story sometimes where they'll be like why didn't you do this and you're like well i did but it's really boring so i didn't put it in the video
0: right you know right
1: like, did you really need to see me switch grits on sandpaper eight times? Probably not. Right. You kind of get the gist of it. It. I did. I showed you what I was doing, and now it looks good. Right. So no. No.
0: Nobody, as much as everybody thinks they want to watch Will or me or anyone make a knife, you really actually don't want to watch the whole time. Yeah, and it and it. There's honestly, a lot of boring.
1: It, there's a so much boring stuff. Yeah, because and people's attention span is like this big now. It's Super annoying. I had one. I had one recently, um, I posted a knife for sale, it was a brute to forge chopper, super cool, I forged in hollows into the bevel, uh, which is not easy to do, and then did like that kind of V-shaped bolster, fit up, whatnot, it took like a whole day of just forging, and then like another day of fit up work and whatnot, and then I posted the knife for sale for 2700 with a sheath from Francesca, which is not cheap. Um, like a six hundred dollar sheath or seven hundred dollar yeah. sheath.
0: Teton leather works. Exactly. Yeah. Um
1: and I got some of the nastiest comments on that, like, how come you're charging so much? That looks like it only took like three hours to make. Like, well, it didn't. You know. Right. For one thing it didn't. For another thing, there's only ever gonna be one of those knives. Right. For a third thing, my actual like my rate on it is let's see, say 16 hours, $2,000. So a little over $100 an hour minus the materials and and whatnot. I was making, I think, right around $100 an hour there, which is a good amount of money. I won't argue with that. That's a great wage, especially for a a kid, right? But it's also, I'm not charging $1,000 an hour. I'm not charging anything that's unreasonable for a skilled craftsman.
0: Yeah, see, and this actually gets like, so Tim Hancock was a huge uh, like a huge proponent, he would, he would bust my ass a bunch about pricing and, and all knife makers, because, you know, this is actually something that like sticks in my craw a little bit. Cause like you say you made a hundred dollars an hour. Right. But like, if you start breaking down, um, well, one, how long did it take you to get to the level that you are? Right. So like If you pay some of the best people in the world to do what they do in their certain professions, you're going to have to expect to pay, right? So um, it's actually interesting because I don't like the question sometimes when I was a custom knife maker, they'd be like, how long did it take you to make that? And it's like, well, actually, this particular knife I might be able to make pretty quick, but Will might not be able to. For sure, these guys over here that maybe don't make liner lock folders, every day and haven't for years for sure it'd take them three times as long if they could ever even get it accomplished to the level I made it. So like, just cause I made it in, you know, six days that that's because I know what the hell I'm doing on that. Right. Yeah. And I'm really, really good at that. Now you turn around and ask me to make a sword as compared to a sword maker. Well, it's good. The roles are going to probably reverse. I'm going to be probably slow as hell, you know, but I'm only going to be able to charge probably the price that like the best sword maker or maybe not even what he can charge, but like for sure, not more. Yeah. Because just cause I suck at making swords doesn't mean that, well, it took me three times as long. I get to charge three times as much as Vince Evans. Yep. Yep. Right. No. I, in fact, I still probably can't charge what Vince Evans can and it takes me longer. Yeah. So like on one of my folders, yeah, it's probably going to take somebody else three times as long and they still won't be able to charge what I do or Rick Dunkerley or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But then when you start as a knife maker, and this is where Tim would harp on me, you start adding in like, okay, do you have a 401k? Do you have health insurance? Do you, you know, do you charge rent on your shop to yourself? Like, well, no, I, I own my shop like out there. Okay, but what if you didn't? What if, you, what if you lived in an apartment in Bozeman and you rented a shop outside of town? Mm-hmm. So like you should have an LLC or an S Corp or something and you should be paying yourself rent. Well, that's overhead. Do you have business insurance? You know, all these things that knife makers generally, the answer to most of these questions are no. Yeah. Right. So you start adding those things in and the next thing you know, you made $20 an hour. Yep. If you were actually implementing all those things. So the lawyer in town, he's charging rent on his building, his firm. I know our attorney is. In fact, that's some of the stuff we talked about when we were in his building. He's like, I personally own this building. He was explaining how he sets up his corporation, right? Yeah. Guaranteed that guy's got a 401k. Guaranteed he's got the best health insurance. And Tim would always say, why does the best lawyer in town deserve more than the best knife maker in town? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he went to college for eight years. Okay, well, who gives a shit? You've been making knives for twenty-five years. Yep. You know, Tim would tell me that. Like, you started making knives when you were eleven. Like, you suffered and didn't make shit for money for fifteen years or twenty years before you started making any money at all. That's that's the other thing is like,
1: I mean, I've made some really really nice knives, especially in like before I started working with Alec. After that point, I started being able to charge like a a lot for my knives, but I remember one knife in particular took me a little over hundred hours to make and I sold it for a thousand dollars and it was easily journeyman quality, nice twist Damascus frame handle, like beautiful little knife. And I thought about it. I was like, wow, that was a real bummer because it seemed like a lot of money to sell a knife for. Right. And I made, I myself personally made about $5 an hour. Yeah, math, if that,
0: math. If you start doing math on what you're making per hour, it's very math can be very depressing.
1: Yeah, and oh my gosh, and it's it's so funny because people will get so up in arms about the price of a knife, right? And they'll have no problem taking their car to a mechanic who's going to charge 160 bucks an hour, right? And there are thou- probably hundreds of thousands of me- oh, maybe not hundred thousand mechanics. There's thousands, I'm sure there are tens and tens of thousands of mechanics. You're probably, actually, you're probably right. I bet one in, yeah, I bet there's probably, I don't know, yeah, hundreds, of, okay, we'll say hundreds of thousands of mechanics who do yes. that exact same job, and there is a handful of people in the world who can make a knife like that. Right. You know, maybe a hundred, right, whatever, whatever it is, and people will be so up in arms about even a $50 shop rate,
0: Right. Right blows my mind. Actually no, it I,
1: doesn't. It's just frustrates. When me. I
0: was making full time, I was always trying to charge, you know, a hundred bucks an hour. And that wasn't even again, I wasn't clearing a hundred dollars. I was just charging a hundred dollars an hour. But and I i wasn't if I was to do everything all over again from the time I was eighteen, like I would have kept way better records of customers, way better records of my time like making knives. I mean knife makers are notoriously terrible about in a, and it's kind of hard because like at times you're making several knives at one time, maybe you're forging enough steel for several knives down the road. Um, you know, but quite honestly, most of the reason I didn't have all that stuff recorded or figured out was cause I was just being lazy. Yeah. Like most knife makers are just being lazy. Like if they actually cared, they would treat it a little bit more serious. Um, and then you really could defend it. Not that you need to, but you know, I was actually breaking that down this last weekend. Um, I was doing a demonstration of making a jelly roll just to build of Damascus here in my shop in front of, you know, some of these people I've demonstrated like just a blade forge or something at like some event somewhere like in South Carolina. Yeah. But it's hard when you're like on a remote site and all you have is a forge and a hammer and it's hard to like really show them what you can do. So most people never seen Damascus made. So I started explaining, um, you know, I think someone was asking something about the price of like a sword or something I charged and Yeah, I think it was for the shake. I made that one sword and it was like thirty seven grand. You know. And so they're talking about like how much money that was, which that's that is, it's a lot of money for a sword. But I went I went in the other room and I brought out a sword, the sword blade that I screwed up in that project. And I had at least two and a half weeks into just working on that that piece. Yep. And I screwed it up. And I also I also explained one of the other like terrible moments in my career when I melted like $8,000 worth of gold into a puddle on my floor.
1: (laughs) Oh, I've never heard that story. Oh yeah, it was awful.
0: (laughs) And, uh, And I didn't have the money to like replace it. Yeah. And so then, you know, I didn't handle it probably perfectly, but then it's like, okay, well then you start another knife project over here for this guy and you're trying to get enough money together. And like, finally I was like getting enough money to buy gold to replace this. And you know, I finally kind of came clean with the customer because I was so far behind on when I was supposed to deliver this knife. The guy was pissed. And I was like, Well, here's here's the truth. Here's what happened. And he and then he was like, Well, you should have just called and told me I would have just bought more gold. Like I would have just paid for it. Cause he was a super rich, like hedge fund guy. And I was like, Well, yeah, but that I screwed that up. Like to me, I was trying to fix the problem. Yeah. And not trying to charge him more. Um, But the point was with that is like, you have a certain amount of screw ups, especially when you're a new knife maker, you know, so if you've quit your job, you're like, I want to be a knife maker and you're starting to try to figure it out. I'm going to say you're going to have like close to a 50% loss. And if not, you're just passing along a lot of shit. You probably shouldn't be. Yep. I tended to throw a lot. I tended to stop on a lot of stuff, probably more than I should have, but I kind of had a high standard. Well, that's just time lost. And when I was a lineman for the power company, um, if I screwed something up at, like, 4 o'clock and, like, burnt down a power pole, they paid me twice as much money after 4.30 to fix it all night. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> oh, my god! <gosh. laughs> like, you know, I was getting paid double time to fix stuff. But when you're a knife maker, it was like, oh, no, now you're working every Saturday, every night. You're working double time to try to get back to the original quote that you just gave somebody. Yep. And now you're behind on the next order and getting ready for the next show. And now at the next show, you're not taking 10 knives, you're taking five. Yep. And it's a snowball effect that I found very difficult to fight, especially when you're doing high-end customs. Yep. You know, if you're making a lot of, you know, similar to our knives we're making now with MKC, if you're making like utilitarian little hunters for 300 bucks a piece, 400 bucks a piece, and you're cranking out and heat treating 30 knives in a batch... You screw one up here and there, you can kind of eat that. Screw up a five thousand dollar Damascus dagger blade because you 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 ground into it wrong, like man, it's tough to make up.
1: Totally, but but you have to, and and that's what your reputation much, depends on it exactly. And that's what every knife maker does. Mm-hmm. And I don't know a single knife maker who has the mentality of like, oh, well, I'm going to charge the customer because I screwed up. Right. It's just a kind of a part of the industry that's like a little bit hidden. Uh, because I guess, I mean, we talk about it, but not a whole lot, and I don't, I don't think we talk about it enough that, that customers really think about it. Even for me, I have, I don't know, probably a dozen machines that are over 60 or 70 years old, and I spend a lot of time working on them. And I do that because I enjoy it, but it also makes my, my, my process faster. Like, they're machines that I invested in to help be able to have, you know, better capabilities. And, uh, like, right now... I'm working on that big hammer Uh, I just took a thousand dollar chunk of bronze uh, turned it to make a new bearing I drove down to Florida to do that and then drove it back because it was cheaper than flying down shipping it and then uh, shipping it back and you know flying home shipping it home and I mean that cost needs to get spread out across your knives because, because of that hammer I can forge stuff a lot faster I can forge bigger billets of Damascus and and, you know, theoretically make more money, but also all of those machines cost an awful lot of money as well. I invested something like 80% of my income in the last two years yeah. into my shop. Uh, and
0: Yeah, and that's and that's something, you know, a lot of knife makers, and you do it a little different. You're definitely doing some things that are even more over top than most makers, but let's just say you have an average maker, and he's just trying to save up to buy a hydraulic press. yeah, Or a, a relatively middle-of-the-road, like, kind of newer say power hammer right or a belt grinder from travis works or something like that that's pretty high price you know five grand or something yeah um there's a ton of guys all the time forever growing up it doesn't matter and it's never changed that are like yeah someday i'm going to be able to afford that well you should have that built into your pricing structure where there's a little bit of money coming out of every knife for future investment in your shop you also have repairs to your own shop of equipment you already own Um, you know, if you're running your business, right, you're depreciating costs out of your equipment because you know that equipment, you're going to wear it out at a certain point. It's start breaking things. And today we just ordered hydraulic hoses, like all new hydraulic hoses for our forklift here for MKC. Um, Bigger businesses do that. Yeah. You know, we're doing that here, but you don't see custom makers doing it and again those are all the hidden costs that you don't explain to a customer at a knife show because you would need an entire podcast to do it yeah um and and honestly too what 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 knife makers really need to do and this needs to be some classes maybe that even knife makers are interesting where you'll take a class or you'll pay for a glass all day long to learn how to fit a guard on a blade but you don't take shit for business classes (laughs) Right. So bad. And <laughs> yeah. Um it, you know, if if there was to ever be a seminar at the Blade Show, it should be a business seminar on if you want to, you know, the business of a professional knife maker. And the other challenge, frankly, that knife makers have is the other knife makers, right? Because and this has always been this way, you know, I'm not active right now in that scene, but but back when I was and I know it hasn't changed, actually it's gotten worse with like Forged and Fire and the internet um you know back when you went to blade show before the internet i'd say a lot of the knife makers in this sh- in the room were professional knife makers they, yeah they made a living making knives right yeah. um not all but a, a healthy percentage were were knife makers and that's it um but we've seen more and more part-time makers and they, they you know they work for GM or they work as a, an attorney or they whatever it doesn't matter they have a roofing company and they make good money doing what they do and they make knives for fun yeah okay so now we're talking about the forged and fire knife maker the fanboy on the weekend knife maker and here's the problem a lot of those guys can be really freaking good yeah i'm not disparaging them at all and in fact they're smart they probably should keep their job that's paying them a hundred grand a year yeah but they're making a knife as well as you or I can make it, and they're going to a show in Atlanta and it's it doesn't matter to them as far as like income. yeah so they're they're selling that knife for half of what the guy standing next to him is trying to feed his three kids on on. Mm. And he doesn't know and so this is an interesting thing uh, um, I think it was Tim and I'll keep the I, I can't remember the knife maker's name. Tim walked up to a guy at a show and pulled him aside. And he said, hey, man, uh, really like what you're doing. You're making some of the top quality knives in here. I think the guy had passed his master smith. And Tim said, I just wanted to know you're fucking everyone in this room. And the guy was like, what are you talking about? And Tim was like, you're making a buoy over there that's on par with, like, what? Me, meaning Tim or Harvey Dean or, you know, Steve, any of these guys are making, right? He said, you're charging less than half. And so a knife maker or knife collector comes to Tim's table and he's charging $3,800 for this knife. And this guy's charging 1200 bucks. Yeah. And he's like, I'm trying, we're all trying to feed our family. You don't need the money, but you're coming here and you're, you're literally cutting the legs out from under everyone. That's teaching you to do this. And the guy was like, I mean, he walked over his table and changed his prices. Good. And like jacked him up. And he's like, "I, I had no idea. He just, he just wanted his material cost out of it, you know, and it wasn't a, he wasn't being, uh, wasn't trying to hurt anybody. Sure. You know, he just wanted to move him so he could make the next knife. And his wife probably wanted him to pay for some of that ivory on that handle or, uh, you know, some of his belts, but yeah, he wasn't thinking of it as a business.
1: Yeah. And I, I feel like that is definitely very common. That are guys who, uh, especially I'm sure even 30 years ago, uh, it was a little bit different, but now guys who have wives that have really good jobs. And so they're like the stay at home, you know, yeah, sugar knife dad. Exactly.
0: That's what you should be looking for.
1: I'm, 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 I'm actively searching. So
0: uh, no, <laughs> yeah. if you're pretty <laughs> and you uh, have a really good job. Yep. Yeah, under the age of 60, preferably. Do you want to know the advice I've been giving my kids? Sure. I really shouldn't say this. Uh-oh. Uh, you can, you know, you, I've been telling my, 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 my kids, you should marry for land or money. You can learn to love. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you like that, Henry? Oh, That's no. good, solid advice. Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, so th- I think there's a lot of guys that have wives that have good jobs. Um, but an interesting point, uh, a buddy of mine started a mobile barber shop. So he has a barbershop up in Big Sky, and then he started a mobile shop so he can travel around the Gallatin Valley. And he's had, I mean, he's a phenomenal barber awesome guy, very personable, good friend of mine. And he, one of the towns that he goes to, had uh, their barber closed down his shop a couple months ago. And he had been doing it for the last like 20 years, just for fun. And he charged $7 for a haircut. The mobile barber did? No, 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 no. no. The guy who was in this town. Okay. The mobile barber, he charges his cheapest price there, which is I think 40 or $45 for a haircut. Damn. Um, you say that, but if you right, think about it, right, I that's think what that's, we're talking about that's how people feel about knives. Yes, is they don't understand all of the costs that have gone into it. he spent, and,
0: and then you cut your own hair like I just did last night <laughs> or this morning. There you go.
1: Yeah. So and now
0: I'm screwing the barber over.
1: For, exactly. So for those of us not blessed with the ability or the know-how or the want to shave our heads, because you have,
0: because uh, you're you're out. You need to keep an image because you're looking for that sugar mama. Exactly. that's right. I got my sugar mama sir. It's, I'm just going all to hell now. <laughs> oh no. But that's, so, but that's a good point though.
1: yeah. So, so everyone who goes who their their perception is that a haircut in this town costs seven dollars and then they go and they're no longer dealing with even like a, like a small town Montana barber. They're dealing with someone who is uh, like nationally published, you know, very well known teaches at national conventions. Like, he's a, he's an excellent, excellent barber. And he has employees and a family to feed and stuff like that. And so his costs are a lot higher than the guy who was just doing it because he wanted something to do three days a week, right? Right. And so now people are like, well, hell no, I'm not going to pay that for a haircut. Or they do, and they're like real rude about it the whole time, whatever it is. But then he can go to Big Sky and charge, you know, twice that for a haircut. And people yeah. are happy to do it all day long because- He's really really good at what he does and it's also a, a different town you know
0: it's, it's interesting because we were you know way back when this was all a topic of a discussion at shows when I was going um uh, doctors and lawyers don't need to worry about this problem like yeah. your dad has a heart attack and needs surgery there's not like a guy like doing heart surgeries in his shed like Why are you good on Tijuana I'll do I'll do that for a third of the cost right yeah. <laughs> or like, you know, I I need a will drawn up. I'm gonna I'm gonna go use Bill over here and um you know, he almost finished law school, you know. <laughs> oh, no. Um you know, knife makers are in this situation where a a ton of and this goes for collectors too, to remember that, you know, when you buy a knife from a knife maker, uh it's their living. A lot of a lot of this can be a hobby, like collecting art can be it's kind of fun, right? It's a thing you do on the side, something you don't really think too much about. Um, and I've seen collectors, and this has happened to me before, where you know, you, I always would tend to wait too long to ask for money, you know. So, like, I hated taking deposits, yeah. So, I generally take a deposit when I started the knife, yeah, but I didn't even do that necessarily. Sometimes I'd start like and get a few couple weeks in, a few weeks in, you know, we'd talk about it, then I'd get kind of get going on it, then be like, okay, I need some money, right? Um, And then the problem is, is, you know, I wait that long because I kind of feel bad for asking. And then the next thing you know, no money showing up, no money showing up, and you get a hold of, trying to get a hold of the collector. And then pretty soon it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I went on vacation for a couple of weeks and I got to move some stocks around and yeah, I'll get to it. And it's not, to them, it's not a big deal. Yeah, Right, but if you sent a bill, if your attorney sent a bill and said this is due on this due date, or there's going to be a, finance charge, right? Mm. You don't miss those payments. No. Now, little does that guy know that that knife maker <clears throat> is literally paying like paycheck to paycheck, probably on house payments. Yep. Well, the the money he's counting on, he does have a late charge pending on his bills. And so, uh, I, you know, I think I did a lot of that right when I was making customs full time from the standpoint of, of being very careful about taking the the deposits yeah because the deposit game can be great if you're super 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 disciplined
1: which almost no knife maker is
0: don't know one (laughs) (laughs) i don't i've not heard of a knife maker out there i mean i have but i can't think of one off top of my head that like runs the deposit game perfectly yeah um and uh i i think way back when i think george heron did it and i think he did it he was doing it all on pen and paper, but I think he did it super diligent. Yeah. Um. But more likely, what happens is, is the dummy knife maker melts five thousand dollars worth of gold on the floor on his shoes, and then starts to use the money that he's got in the account to like cover. Yeah. And pretty soon, now we're getting behind, and now we're really in a bind because yeah. we've involved several people, several orders. Guy calls and wants his money back. Like, uh, you know, and that would happen too. Like somebody waits around for a knife order for two years and you call them to start it like, Hey, this is Josh. I'm wanting to start your order that you placed back in 2018. And they're like, yeah, man, business isn't so good. Can I have my two grand back that I sent you? At least with me, it was like, I just want to cancel my order. Yeah. Now the opposite of that can be true. That guy already gave you his two grand two years ago. He might stay committed. Yeah. And that's where the order thing can work really well for you is you can get people committed to where that money's kind of gone. And then they're like excited about it. Yeah. But boy, um, I've always said, if you're going to do that as a knife maker, you've got to open a separate account. You got to put that money in that account. And you do not pull that money out until, you know, you're working on that knife and you're, you've communicated with the customer. Yeah. If he cancels, you take that money and send it right back. But um that money does not exist.
1: So when you were doing knives, just knives full time, were you doing primarily custom work?
0: Yes, but I I think with what you're asking is was I doing primarily stuff that people were ordering?
1: Sorry, yeah, were you were you taking c- like custom orders from people?
0: Um I would say it was a 50/50. Okay. Uh, you know, I was um I always wanted to just make what I wanted just make what I wanted to yeah but I don't know if I ever really had the guts to just fully commit to it I did later on like I was making knives for shows um but I also like my collectors right so like it's kind of hard to say no like yeah. if your collector we were talking about earlier that has like one of my daggers mm-hmm. like if he calls you and wants to order one right now like you don't really need that order I but you would probably take it
1: there's a handful of collectors where if they they let me know they're like hey I'd really like one of these and, and and those are the like the people who are cool about it who have pieces from me, I know, I know them. The people who I have relationships with who I trust, I'll I'll take an order for them. But, and, gen- but that
0: doesn't take very long to kind of fill up a year. No, yeah, even that you got to be like so, careful.
1: So right now I have a few things where people are like, hey, I want one of these whenever you get around to it. Yep. And so at some point I'll get the wild hair, I'll get an itch, I'll be like, okay, I'll go make that. Right. Um, it's not super common though. Um, I'm, I'm pretty, I don't do any, I say I don't do any custom orders. I still get emails about it all the time. Uh, and it is like a little bit, I get, I get a little bit stressed out. I'll like build a knife and then I'll post it up for sale. And then if it doesn't sell like right away, I'm like, uh Oh,
0: right. Yeah. Oh. Throat starts to close and you're like, Oh boy.
1: It's like, it's not, it's, I mean, usually it's not the end of the world, but like it's, it's a good feeling when you post a knife up and it's gone immediately. Yes.
0: Um, yep. And now uh, even even uh, you know you get that feeling. I remember that feeling back at knife shows. You know, you put however many knives out on your table and and you you, you hope that they're gone like Friday morning right off the bat. Yeah. It's, you know, and it's like okay, well, I sold half of them today. That's pretty good. Like hopefully Saturday morning, but boy, by the time one o'clock on Saturday hits, if you got knives left, you're like, oh boy, I'm probably taking this thing home. Yep you know and that's where I was uh better than pretty much anybody in the game back when I was really doing that stuff full-time because I super embraced uh like getting email addresses and doing like the constant contact email list yeah I was one of the only guys and and I and I showed a ton of people about doing it a ton of knife makers I was like you got to do this because man when you can build an email list that's you know I, I back then, I want to say had three or four thousand people on it, which doesn't sound like a lot in email lists today. But if it's three or four thousand emails that you put in, yeah, you that, know, this wasn't that like
1: are, are people that are like, it's not just like, a, oh, I place this order online and I, you know, yeah, you, you, didn't, hit the you box. didn't,
0: they didn't just sign up for a giveaway and give me your email. Like yeah. they want to be on your list. I could come home from any knife show, send out and say, hey, I got a knife or whatever, or just a custom. And that, that was really where. Uh, you know, it got to where a lot of my business where I would make a knife, I'd put it up on my website and then email my list. Yeah.
1: I need to build an email list because right now, so I, I went to Blade Show West back in October and super fun show. I brought six pieces with me, I think, and I only sold three of them. And so I sold the rest of them by the, like on the drive home, but it was still like me messaging like some of the collectors who I knew were interested in stuff like that. And you know, seeing see, what some... I
0: loved about the email list is I always, and I did the same thing that you did and I always felt awkward about it. Cause like, you don't want someone to feel obligated. Yeah. Y- you know, you kind of feel bad. Like I want somebody to see that knife and be like, I want that and reach out. Yeah. And I did this. I-, I would have guys all the time. Tell me like, Hey man, if you have a knife like this or like this, like call me or message me and I would do it and guys would take it. Or sometimes I wouldn't. And then I'd have a guy later on, like, Hey I heard you had this knife like I told you I wanted to so it's like this weird like feeling bad but then like feeling bad also that you didn't message them that the email the email list and you could build it super easy because with your YouTube following you could do like a like a giveaway or something and say hey guys yeah I I need I, emails I
1: think I want to have that that so I think a list like that is very important but I also the people who are just like generally interested in what I do but then I also think a list of people who are like oh yeah I can drop twenty five hundred bucks on a chef's knife. That's no problem. Yeah, I think that that clientele is, uh, and honestly, like those collectors are all super cool people for the most part. Yeah,
0: so. you know, I think, I think from management wise, in my personal opinion, having one just big list because also that makes sense. You have you have dudes on those lists that might not have any idea on that YouTube right now, but the more they start to learn, like they have the income to do it. But they might look at your knife today and be like, "That's stupid. Why is that thing three grand?" And then they watch some more of your videos. They see some of your stuff come out, and they start to learn. They start to become a fan of you. And then the next thing you know, like they're springing for a knife that's fifteen hundred, or then it's two thousand, or then it's three. Um, so I think you can educate and build people that are, and then you're for sure gonna have just some people that are a pain in your ass. Sure,
1: and that's that'll you know. that'll always be the case. A quick side note. Uh, just on pricing, I looked this up the other day. Um, do you know what a $1 dollar in 1990 or in 2000 is worth today? No. It's like a dollar seventy-five. So if you sold a knife, you know, I, I don't know how much you adjusted your pricing because I know that even in like uh, 2019, we built folders together, right? Are you, Were you selling those knives for a similar price to what you're selling them for in 2000?
0: Oh, Yeah. I would be uh so
1: you're making almost half as much.
0: Right. And yeah. that's
1: something that I know most knife makers are not accounted for. Inflation since, you know,
0: I would actually be curious. I haven't been to a custom show in a while. I I would actually be really really curious to walk around and like look at everybody's knives and like look at pricing and see if it's changed much or
1: I don't think it has I would I would guess that it hasn't changed about maybe half as much as inflation has. So I bet makers are making probably 30 or 40 percent less based off of the pricing that I know of from kind of like the early 2000s. But you should just come to Blade Show and find out. It's true. It's so much fun. When's Blade? Uh, First weekend of June. This year it's like the second, third, and fourth maybe.
0: Yeah I'll be in the bitter looking for a bear. Oh man. We got a hunt planned with Derek Wolf.
1: I don't know who that is but it sounds like fun. He sounds the, like you like watch
0: Rogan at all. Wolves a little bit. Yeah. He's the the Denver Broncos player He was on there like three weeks ago talking about his mountain lion or whatever. Okay, well, that's pretty cool. He looks like a Viking. Uh, uh when's that hunt? It's that weekend. it's like June. No, you know what? We pushed that back. It's the 10th to the 15th. Ah maybe I can come. I
1: can even get you a pass. I just got my really I just finished my table today. so
0: nice. yeah. <laughs> nice. VIP. Yep. Really, I think yeah. so.
1: I think that's that's what they give. To all I've the never tables. gone to blade
0: on the other side of the table. It
1: is so much more fun. It's crazy. It it's almost mind-blowingly more fun. So I had a table last year, uh, and all I had was my JS knives, and then three others. I gave one of the knives away, uh, and then I sold my JS. Also,
0: knives. what knife makers do a lot of, <laughs> which is terrible business. Not that it's terrible, but like <laughs> that was like one. Knife of these, makers though. are like the most generous yeah. people like you got a knife maker that's like broke off his ass and can't hardly pay his bills and he'll go to a show and he'll be like uh like a cute little kid or somebody and be like i ah, hear you can take this one you know? <laughs> yeah but uh that's just that's what's cool about the, knife,
1: the it, knife world it really is and honestly like we talk about pricing we talk about business and whatnot and it's you can't do it unless it's the thing that you like have to do yeah, If you have to do it, you are going to do it. Whether or not you like have health insurance and can pay your bills all that well, uh, you got to live humbly. Um,
0: well, I totally didn't listen to the advice I was being given by like Harvey Dean and Tim and Larry, all these guys, because they were like, the whole time I was a kid. Get a real job. For for 10 years, from the yeah. time I was 11 to 21, do not do this for a living. Do not. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm not going to. I'm going to take over my parents' excavation business. Okay, I'm going to go to college, become an Construction engineer. Um, okay, I'm out of college, but I'm gonna still take over my parents' excavation, and I'm gonna, you know, I can do that. And I'll just then I can make the knives I want to make, and all this stuff. And charge half
1: for them, screw the over everyone else.
0: Day I closed on my first home, I quit my job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. And became a knife maker. Oh my gosh! Yeah, no, it's and of course I was like, well, the, you know, Harvey and all those guys with you know Southern accent, like I'm I'm smarter than them. I can I can. <laughs> Do it better than them, and it's like, yeah, ten years of struggling, and you know, it's interesting though. But it's, do you, do you regret it? Oh no, no, not at all. And I, I think it's one of those things. Actually, much like MKC, it's one of those things. Had I never scratched the itch, if I would have just always thought about being a full time maker, then I'm sure I would have thought that, like, I would have had regret. Yeah. That like I could have made it, right? Or I could have been the greatest on earth or blah, 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 right? The best knife maker ever, all that stuff. Same with MKC. Like I talked about MKC for 20 years. Yeah. Like, and especially like in the last 10 years of being a lineman, it's like, man, do I quit this job? It's really good. It's got benefits, all that. But I just kept talking about it. And it was like, if, if, I, if I turn 60 years old and I look in the mirror and I haven't tried it, like I will for sure regret it. 100%. You know, so no, now I would definitely go back and do the the, the custom knife making thing different. Like even embracing social media when it was coming around. Um, I embraced like like technology really well, like website and internet and uh, email. But I wasn't, I didn't have the foresight to recognize like what social media was, which frankly was the most powerful free marketing tool on earth.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's been very prevalent the whole time that I've been in knives and and it's how I found a lot of knife makers. I made a lot of good friends through it. Uh, And so it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to imagine what it would be like without it. But on the other hand, I'm a very social person and I love going to shows and I kind of, am a little bit sad that you don't have to go to shows to be able to sell knives anymore. Cause I, I have so much fun getting to go and hang out with folks there it's it's the best time. So I
0: don't miss going and standing behind the table. But to your point, I miss the knife makers and I and I really it's and I've said this about MKC, the thing I love most is the people. Like whether it's in the industry or our or our people that have been buying them. Um it's the, yeah, I loved the going. I love spending time in the in the pit, you know, at the Atlanta Blade Show. Oh yeah. Um the hotel rooms that back in the days of like the Eugene Oregon show or the bar and the Crown Plaza Hotel in New York City and Times Square. Mm -hmm. Like, we had the greatest times. And, of course, I was a kid, like, getting to sit around and listen to the old guys tell stories. Yeah. The old guys that were 30 and 40.
1: (laughs) Super-duper old. Yeah. Geriatric.
0: Ancient. (laughs) Um, But, you know, so what you've done with your career is super smart because, like, no offense, but I would argue that, like, you would have really struggled – you know, you started young just like me. Uh, you were super hard worker. You were, su- you know, you, you know, super creative. But had you not done like the YouTube thing, if you'd have just moved out of your parents' basement and tried to rent a place and like get a shop and be a knife maker, like the struggle would have been so real.
1: I so I I did that for about eight months. Dropped out of school in. Or, well, I finished out my first year of school in, like, the beginning of May. And then Alec got to Montana in November. Seven months, maybe. And and I, I mean, my rent was $700 a month. I had a 1,000-square-foot shop. And all I did was make knives during that time. And that's the time when I made, I was making such unbelievably poor money because my name was so not out there. I had been to One Knife Show... I didn't really have equipment to be able to make my process fast. And I wanted to build super clean, as high quality as possible knives. But I didn't have the means to do it effectively or, mm-hmm. or efficiently. And and so, and so I got so burnt out on making knives. It was crazy. That's, that's part of the reason why I love doing video stuff is because it allows me to not go broke while I work on a... 1924 hundred or 400 pound power hammer for, you know, two weeks. And I get to scratch the itch of like working on an antique machine. And then I'm really excited to get back to building knives or, you know, I can go on a trip across the world and go and look at, you know, museums and visit with other knife makers. And I can still, you know, it's not as good of money as like making a video about making a knife. Cause that's, you know, double whammy. Right. Uh, but it's given me a lot of freedom to kind of be able to do whatever while still kind of being a professional knife maker. I would say, I would say I'm only kind of a professional knife maker because I have the support of those other things.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, I disagree. I mean, I think you're a, I think you're one of the smarter professional, like I look at you, you're a professional knife maker, but I think you're one of the smarter ones out there where you've figured out how to kind of flourish in a, in a world that's like super hard, like for you to have flourished from without YouTube with just making knives, like it would have taken you another decade or two of struggle. Like, and you'd have had to have done what a lot of guys did and, and absolutely live on beans and rice and pay your dues and travel to shows. And, and, and I have no doubt you would have figured that out. But like you saw that burnout factor coming in seven or eight months of doing that. Like It's such a difficult wear mentally because you alluded to it. You wanted to make super, super clean knives, right? But quite frankly, you weren't a good enough knife maker to expect that level, like the highest level out of yourself. So then you start playing this internal struggle with yourself of like, is this good enough to put out? I know it's not perfect. I want to make stuff that's perfect. If I was really doing right by the customer, I'd throw this away and start over, right? But like- you're not good enough to do that. So then you try to reflect it in your prices, and and you try to be honest about things, and and you know, people also understand when you're brand new at something that it's that you're going to continue to get better. And I would argue that's a that's something that you never ever actually catch, right? You never actually become satisfied because, like, hopefully, r- right? Because you you always know you know, your prices go up, your quality goes up, your expectation level of your work goes up, and you keep chasing that, like, I want to make the perfect knives, and I want to be perfect, and and ultimately, you're making stuff, I mean, this thing's handmade, you know, Um, and only you know where the flaws in that baby are, right, so, like, you know the spot that you were struggling, or maybe it's right, everything's right with it, but it's not the way you had it drawn originally, so you're, like, disappointed because you wanted that knife handle to be a little different yeah. you know there's
1: i think i could probably count on one hand the amount of knives that i've finished and been like oh
0: nice it's exactly what i wanted Exactly. And it's really good
1: yep exactly yeah it's it's such a rare thing and it's so funny because a lot of the like really cool collectors that i know they're like oh i don't care right they're like oh it's you know it's handmade i, I first off a lot of people would never notice it. You're like you've got a handful of guys in the world that if they picked up that knife, they would notice the things that I notice about it. Maybe maybe a few more than a handful, but not very many. And it is yeah, we are definitely our own worst critics, but it also like you said it, you know, it drives us to be to be better. But it is really hard to chase that level of perfection that I think that really sets knife makers apart. You see the guys uh, who are like, who call it good enough. And quite frankly, unless something big changes, they're never going to be great knife makers. Right. And in order to be a great knife maker, you have to want to, you know, kind of push the limits, make it as clean as possible, make it as flowy, as cool as possible. Um, and actually, you know what, this is funny. I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, a concept I've been thinking about a little bit recently is uh, how much you can tell about a person's personality uh, or even about their life based off of their work. Uh, there are a handful of guys who like I can look at one of their knives, and now that I know them, especially, I'd be like, "Oh, I see his personality 100%. traits reflected in his in this piece." Yeah, I mean, yeah, I have. Shoot, what's a good example? Jason's a great example. Yeah, uh, Jason Knight, mm-hmm. unbelievably good bladesmith. He's one of the like coolest, laid back dudes you've ever met, and he his work has a like. Uh, Kind of it's well, it's very flowy. He kind of like helped introduce flow into the knife community, right? Um, and his work is badass flowy without kind of taking itself too seriously if, if you can imagine what that would look like in a knife Then you go look at his work and you're like, oh yeah, and and I mean The more that I've thought about this almost every knife maker that I can think of you look at their knife and you're like, okay like you can tell a lot about their personality if it's like real real tight sharp crisp clean lines you can tell kind of yeah, like Tim hancock yeah. yeah did he have like i i've never met tim did he have like a pretty meticulous meticulous straightforward person like very very like tight Hair comb
0: perfectly sport coat boots polished yep uh creased pants what do you call it starched like creased pants like yeah like the crease had to be like that was what his knives were that is now, so funny. I will argue with you that there's also the opposites. So uh, the one I'm thinking of, he's a cowboy. He's as simple as can be, quiet, unassuming. I already know who you're talking about. And then he makes a goblin folder. <laughs> right? Larry Fagan is is Larry Fagan is like the most unassuming, yeah, just quiet cow- cowboy. Yeah, and. And then all of a sudden, he'll crank out, like, the most unbelievable, like, crazy piece of artwork. Yeah. With all this, this artwork that just oozes out of him, and, you, like, you would never see it coming.
1: But I feel like when you really get to know him, like, I'm sure his wife is not surprised at all when he makes something.
0: I'm sure, yeah. Partially
1: because she's awesome. She's yeah. Just delightful lady. But I think that, like, you get to know, <sighs> I'm because I'm sure he, like... I'm sure behind closed doors when you're like really good friends with him, he's probably a little quirky. Like I'm not that close with him. I've met him a handful of times. I think he's amazing. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I would agree. I think there's a couple of exceptions to that.
0: rule. What you end up figuring out about him though, is he's that artistic in like everything that he does. I mean, yeah. I haven't been to his house, but I know guys that have been to his house that talk about like his carved beams in his house and like his custom made like front door or whatever gates. And yeah, I, I you know, you, you do when you do get to know him better, you realize that like like um you know, the halters that he makes or the bridle the bridles that he makes for his horses and the and the, the spurs and the saddles, like when he makes like anything he touches is like over the top artistic. Yeah. You know so cool. Um it just not what you quite expect when you just meet a cowboy on the street. Yeah.
1: The, you think more Wade Coulter when you see work like
0: that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now Wade, Wade, I can imagine making goblin folders and uh, buoys that have guns mounted to the side that shoot. Yeah. Know? Exactly. Like, yeah. What kind of drugs did you smoke before you started making that um, thing? All of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One time. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah I, the the YouTube st- stuff that you're doing, I I I think it's so cool that you figured out a way. It's so genius. Like you said, okay, you you buy this power hammer you know like like i like i bought a little old little giant hammer and i kind of refurbished it and did stuff but that just cost me time and money yeah you know i did it in my shop i put a couple pictures up on instagram um you know even building my new shop or building that shop over there like anything that i do over there generally costs me time and money and what's super smart is that you've brought your customers and your fans along for the ride mm-hmm. all the way which i i would argue really makes a a very loyal customer, a loyal follower, much like we've done with MKC. Yeah. It's been that way. They, we've been pretty open with everything from day one. Yeah. Makes people super loyal, feels like they're invested. Um, but you've gotten kind of paid to do it along the way. Yeah. And that's a huge, you know, even if you're not, even if you weren't making a bunch of money off YouTube, if it did nothing but just pay your kind of minimum wages to, to be able to do a project like that, Mm-hmm. you get to the end of it and you're not in a hole
1: that that's honestly probably closer to where I'm at. Cause I, am at because i i I pay my videographer, uh, out of, out of YouTube as well. And so, uh, yeah, like that big hammer at, I bought it for six grand. I probably have about $25,000 into it at this point.
0: Yep. From I the... remember you making trips to Spokane, like <laughs> over and over to get parts made. And... Yeah.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. It just, uh, but but from that, like, I don't think I've lost money on it. I don't think I've made a lot of money on it, but from the videos that I've made about it, it's, I haven't wasted, I haven't sunk that money into it. I yeah. mean, I have, but
0: like... No, another knife maker would be divorced over it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So it's, it, that, it is a huge blessing to be able to uh, invest time in the things that I want to invest time into. And so long as I can explain what I'm doing and make a fun video about it, to not, you know, go broke over it. Yeah. It's yeah, it's a great time.
0: Do you have a hard time coming up with ideas of things you want to do, like YouTube videos you want to make? Do you do you, do you have a list of stuff like I you kind of lay way out too your many year? Yeah. No,
1: I'm I'm terrible at administration and scheduling and planning. Oh, you must be a knife maker. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It's it is a real struggle. But no, I just I have so many projects that I want to do. And honestly like even knife stuff, knife stuff does great on my YouTube channel. But most of the time I get honestly like a little burnt out even on videos. And I'm like, okay, I just want to go make a knife and like not have to film the process. Cause when I film it and if I do a good job filming, it takes me like 50% or 60 or 70% longer to, to do a project. So if I, you know, if that knife took me whatever, 25 hours to to make or something like that, it would have taken me 35 or or more, if I did a really good job at filming the whole process. Even if Isaiah's there and he's doing the lighting, he's setting up the shots, it still takes so much longer to film something. And it kind of sucks the joy out of the things that I'm like really passionate about sometimes.
0: Yeah. So Now, when it comes to monetizing, and Henry might be able, he, he might have thoughts on this too, but when it comes to monetizing like YouTube videos, um, you know, I was, I was listening to a podcast yesterday uh, I actually sent it to Brandon because it's interesting with all the social medias, everything that's going on, the way that they, uh, you know, the way they push some, you know, the algorithm, the way they push some videos, the way that some videos perform well, uh, this video is like th- this length video does better six or seven minutes. This one does better because it's 20. Now people, like I was being told that people being rewarded for stuff that's closer to an hour. Um, how, how much of that game do you pay attention to, you know, or do you just make it about what you're making?
1: Yeah, so I I paid a little bit of attention to it. I noticed the trends in my own videos. But the thing is, is that, like, each channel is going to have a different audience and is going to have different demographics of people that like different stuff. And so I would say it's really hard to try and plan that stuff out because not only does it change all the time, but then also there are different factors to the video that will make it pick up better in the algorithm. Like if you have a great hook at the beginning of the video or if your thumbnail does, if you have a great thumbnail, a great title, uh, if, yeah, you have good engagement with it, like all of those things come into play uh, and I honestly, I don't have it figured out. I, I see things like the worst video, the video has done the worst on my channel is uh kind of a vlog style video where uh, where I went to Italy. It was like the start of a you know round the world trip that I did, and that video has like probably thirty five thousand views, um, which is yeah by far the worst the worst performing video on my channel. So I have I have also a little bit of a weird situation where I have a very very consistent follower base. I get between like 85 and 130,000 views on pretty much anything I do. Yeah. Uh, so long as I like hit something with a hammer, those 85 to 130,000 people are there to watch it. Yeah. Uh, if I kind of deviate too far from that, people don't get happy. I I made a video about making rattlesnake tacos from the first rattlesnakes that I killed on my property. Really? <laughs> and uh uh, like super cooling butter and trying to cut through it with a hot knife. And I destroyed a fifty two one hundred or 5,200 knife cutting through uh 120 degree butter. Oh, really? That, I mean, the knife was at 2000 degrees. Oh, really? Uh, so I was like, I don't know. I was like, it's involves hot stuff that, you know, might be kind of good. And it. I think that's the second worst video on my yeah. channel. And I was like, it's not, not the end of the world. Isaiah and I just had a fun afternoon playing with Super cooled butter and really hot knives. So, I mean, yeah, no big loss at the end of the day. Um, but I have noticed that, like, the more I stick to knives and old machines, kind of good that's, to go.
0: That's your sweet spot. Yeah. Um, which the, is
1: great because that those are the things that I love.
0: Yeah. No, it's perfect. Uh, do you do you spend a lot of time or attention, uh, like on the social medias, um, even like with with, TikTok, um, or, or, you know, much with Instagram. I mean, I know you post a little bit, but I post mostly stories on
1: Instagram. I actively right now I'm very burnt out on posting on Instagram. I, I know exactly what to do if I want to grow my Instagram. If that was like something that I was like really focused on, I could, I could do a pretty good job at growing it, but I'm not in a headspace where I'm like, Oh man, I really need more Instagram followers right now. I've, I've actually, i I'm very slowly losing followers uh, and it doesn't really bug me because at the, end that, of the Oh, sorry. Uh, it doesn't... You can pull it to you too. It doesn't really bother me because at the end of the day, it doesn't really count for anything and so I'd rather like, you know, have more fun in the shop or I like started doing jujitsu a couple months ago and I have devoted a stupid amount of time to doing that uh, or traveling or playing with my dog, whatever it is. And, and I noticed that if I try and film everything just to put it on Instagram, it's kind of all I think about. And so if I had someone who was helping me out with it, I'd maybe do a little bit better job at it, but I don't feel like that is something that I, I growing my YouTube, that's where I make money. So that actually is important. Uh, but right. I I mean, I'm kind of just having fun right now. I'm i I'm kind of coasting, honestly. Really? Um, yeah. I, I, again, I, I, I understand exactly how to grow my YouTube channel. Um, and and it probably is something that I should care more about, but I just don't right now,
0: yeah I mean honestly <laughs> it's 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 actually it's actually something I like think about around here too is like man it, it's all there's the, there's that theory like if you're not growing, you're dying, yeah right, like one or the I, other
1: I would say that's very true
0: um but it's it's hard because like how much how much effort do you put into growing? And miss how much fun, like, like if I could just sign up for what we're doing here today for the rest of my life, like I'd probably sign the contract, yeah. right? Like probably never, never going to get like filthy rich doing what we're doing just today, but I like could make a really good living and be fun. Yeah. Um, but then how much growth do you do and do you, how much time do you put into that growth and then miss kind of the fun?
1: Exactly. And that's, that's part of the reason why I haven't, honestly, that's part of the reason why I haven't done production knives is because, like, I know I can sell a lot of knives. I, I have enough followers and uh, people like my designs enough that I know I can sell a lot of production knives. But I don't want to have to deal with employees. And I don't want to have to deal with, you know, the contractors that are building the knives or, or whatever. And I don't want to have to sit at a bench all day and just hammer out the same thing. I can make a pretty decent living and have a lot of fun in the shop right now. And I kind of look at it as getting an education in, you know, design and performance and stuff like that. So that as I get more mature and lose that mentality, I can move forward and have a viable, you know, production business or, or whatever it is. Uh, and so, yeah. And, and and honestly, the other thing is, I mean, for all we talked about knife makers, sucking at business and being broke and like, yeah, sometimes you get it burnt out, but a lot of those guys are doing the thing that they love and like they might be scraping by, but they, a lot of us kind of, knife makers kind of don't care
0: well harvey harvey dean told me years ago that that was kind of a trade-off he just signed that he just knew after a little while like he just kind of knew that was going to be his life right is not that harvey's broke but harvey harvey said like never going to be rich never going to be overly wealthy may not ever really like fully retire yeah you know might probably kind of have to make knives as long as he's able to yeah um but it he probably could have had all those things had he just kept doing steel work Yeah, as a steel worker could have worked for 30 years and retired, but he would have never for sure never would have had the experiences that he, that he got to have. Right. And, and to be able to, um, be involved in his kids' lives, kind of have the schedule he wanted to set, be around his wife a lot, be able to travel to shows whenever, um, you know, knife makers tend to trade a lot. So like, you know, trading knives for a deer hunt that he went on, right. Or, or Mm -hmm. getting to go hang out on somebody's boat and go deep sea fishing, some rich customer, right. That, that probably wouldn't be able to afford to buy that trip. Yeah. But some customers like, Oh, come on down to Florida and go fishing. Yeah. And so, um, you know, when I sit here and talk about the business stuff, I I never want to lose sight of that. Like, um, really what made me get away from making knives full time is I knew I would never really was never really going to get to the point where I could afford to try to start what I'm doing now. Yeah. And also like having four young kids and going through back then, which was was a recession, you know, in 2010, 11, you know, that time frame. Um, It was just, what's that? Is that my computer? I think it's my computer over there hooked to my phone my uh i think i'm getting what time is it oh it's a knife drop yeah that's a good problem that's a great problem i was like what are all the dingings going on but we're doing a knife drop right now so that's that's uh we're recording this uh it's 704 and we're doing um a knock on our knock on knife knife drop i was like awesome who the hell but my computer is in our podcast studio over on the other side going Going berserk. Uh that's that's a sound I'll never get tired of. Yeah. (laughs) But no, that's an important part of that is is you can't put a price on experience in life because ultimately we're all gonna kick the bucket. Yeah. And and so um I mean I had that I had that career where it was like guaranteed for the rest of my life I was just gonna make a great living, retire, all that as with being a lineman. But I would have never had this experience.
1: Exactly. And it's, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting for me to see. So I grew up in a, uh, well, like a, like a pretty wealthy family in, in Bellevue. I went to a private Christian school and the path that I was pushed down, and I think it's probably a little bit different in like Lincoln, Montana, but generally I would say the general path that people are pushed down is, okay, you go to high school
0: you graduate drop out. Oh, wait.
1: <laughs> you get addicted to making knives. You drop out. No, uh, you go to high school. You go to college. You get a degree in something that you don't really care about. You maybe you kind of try and figure it out. You maybe switch majors a couple times. And then most people that I know that graduated college don't really care about what their degree is. They just kind of want to have a stable job. But then they're also like totally enchanted by the idea of like wanderlust and going out and having experiences. And they like maybe do it like a little bit. But then they also have the job that they have to go to that they don't really care about, and it just seems super sad and unfulfilling to me.
0: Yeah. Um, and yeah, and so, you got to balance, you know, your 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 <laughs> your vacation time, your days off, and you know that I was doing that with with as a lineman. Like, oh, I got three weeks paid vacation. Well, two of those weeks I'm gonna use on sick kids and and going to sporting events. Yeah, for them or whatever, take yeah. them to, revolving around family. Yeah. So I got one week the rest of the year. I get to choose and I live in one of the greatest States to be able to go and do stuff Yeah, or surrounded by every state in every direction. um, And you literally have to limit your experiences life down to a week, a year of vacation. That sucks. You know? Yeah. I uh, and Yeah. What's that?
1: Well, I was just going to say uh, one of my all time favorite quotes, I have it written in giant letters on the wall of my shop is, far and away the best prize that life has to offer is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. It's a Teddy Roosevelt quote. Yeah, Uh, that's cool. And it's, I mean, it's hard to say that like building a chef's knife is necessarily work worth doing. But I think that you can almost, I don't know if you can substitute out like, I would say work worth doing is work that you are passionate about. Actually, work worth
0: doing to who, and in whose opinion, like I would argue that that's work worth doing more than almost anything because Someday, this is going to be the only thing left in some family. Like somebody's going to probably buy this from Blade Gallery. Yeah, they're going to treasure it. They're going to pass it down. And in two hundred years, it's going to be. It's, it's going it's to a relic. Yeah. yeah, and and it might be, you know, all those people. Not not to disparage, you know, lawyers or whatever, but like just just a lot of of professions it's going to be tough because a lot of the work that you did for an entire career just kind of vanishes. Yeah. Uh,
1: I looked it up really quick. Uh, just to make sure i pull that up. Pull that, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. I think that back to the, the work worth doing. And and I think that honestly building relics is work worth doing, but there's a Howard Thurman quote, which is don't ask yourself what the world's need. Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive because what the world really needs is people who have come alive And I think that 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 combined with the Teddy Roosevelt quote pretty much sums up, like, I think how most people should find out what they want to do. And I think that we were both very blessed and we understood, you know, from a pretty young age what we wanted to do. Yeah. Um, But I'd say so many people in the world have not come alive because they don't know what they're passionate about because they haven't spent time uh, actually trying to figure it out. They've gone through school and kind of, like, sidelined to figuring out what they're passionate about. And instead they, you know, work a nine to five, come home, watch some TV, do whatever. uh, And they're not actually working on things that they're passionate about. And I think that is super duper sad. And it's really, it's been very cool to see you and MKC go through the process of like obviously you've been passionate about knives for a long time. But I'd say probably when I first met you, like you weren't really building all that many knives. And I wouldn't say that you were like terribly passionate about it at that point.
0: Yeah, I was and pretty burned out.
1: Yeah. It's been yeah. it's been so cool to see the last couple of years of you every time we meet, you're stoked on what's going on for MKC. There's always exciting fun stuff happening. Yeah. That's been, I mean, I just got goosebumps talking about that. Yeah. It's so, so fun to see uh, so much passion around a project. Uh, and for years now. You've been
0: yeah. Passionate and stoked yeah. about and, it. And actually I've got that passion back too of, I really want to get back in the shop, you know, and build, awesome. build some knives. And I actually have Henry um, even video some of that and stuff. And, and, you know, it's going to be super cool and fun to get. You know, I, I couldn't work in that shop for the last year, really. Yeah. Um, it was impossible. But now that I have my shop back, um, I'm actually, like, super excited to get back in there. Even just making that jewelry roll this weekend, I was like, man, I forgot. I hadn't forged Damascus in well over a year, maybe Dang. two years. Um, and so just, just squeezing steel and doing that again. And, but it's going to be cool to go and do that and build whatever I want to build. Because I don't need to build it for the next show or yeah. like a collector. I can just build what I want to build. It's um. so much more fun. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, so now, how old are you now? 23. three. Twenty, Still only 23. I know. Have you had a birthday in the last three years? <laughs> it's insane to me. <laughs> I know <laughs> knife makers are bad at math, but we're not that bad at math, right? Man, 23. <sighs> That's unbelievable. Um, Yeah, like... You still don't even, you're still not even at the age where people are like, you need to figure out what you're going to (laughs) do. I know. (laughs) You know, Oh, it's wild. It's pretty cool. It's inspirational.
1: I appreciate it. I do feel like I'm, well, like I said earlier, I feel like I'm coasting right now. And on the one hand, I really enjoy that. But on the other hand, I'm like, man, like I have an opportunity before me to like do some great stuff. And I feel often at times like I'm almost squandering that. Uh, because i'm not pushing forward i'm not trying to grow my instagram as fast as possible I'm, not putting as much effort into growing my youtube as fast as possible I'm investing my time in in other and honestly, I wouldn't say that i'm wasting my time I'd say i'm investing it in other areas other than just growing my social media um,
0: yeah, but you can't I would argue that you can't sprint Full-time no, right you can't sprint full-time.
1: especially not when you're in bad shape.
0: Yeah you definitely have to uh I, I I think you're in these I think you go through phases where sometimes you like slow down, pause a little bit, you you keep the ball rolling forward, but like take in all the information around you. And and I think it's actually a good idea to like pick your head up once in a while from what you're currently doing and make sure you're not tunnel visioned. Like yeah. You could just be worrying about just focusing on growing YouTube forever and wake up when you're 35 and be like I actually don't like doing this. Like, I could have, I could have started a knife company, or I could have um, started a a production company, or whatever. Yeah, that you're doing, and like, just make sure that every now and then, like, you're not just like head under the water swimming as hard as you can swim. Like, sometimes you gotta like stop for a little bit and like look around. Totally, you know? totally. Um, and like you equating squandering time to most 23 year olds is a little, it looks a little different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you're still moving forward and yeah. doing cool shit, you know? I appreciate that. So, well, uh, we should probably let Henry get home to his family. He actually came early to shoot videos this morning. Oh no. And so now it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm good. You guys want to keep rolling? Keep no, where we're, we should probably let you get, I got actually packed to go to Hawaii. Oh yeah. um, but, uh, no, I greatly appreciate you coming by. Um, Thank you so much for Do you have any me. other, is there any specific projects, anything you're excited about, like, right now you want to chat about? You know,
1: uh, nothing too crazy going on. Just got some, some fun knife work coming up. Um, yeah, I'm going to be hosting a, a, a like, micro hammer-in just for Damascus making with, like, Steve Schwarzers coming out and then uh, Salem, Moreco, Josh Prince, Nick Anderson and Charlie Ellis So like, in my mind, the guys who are doing like some of the craziest pattern welding, I was just like,
0: I, that is rad. Yeah, uh,
1: I kind of want to be around that. So why don't y'all come hang out? No doubt.
0: (laughs) So is that a public hammering? No,
1: that's, that's like, they're going to be here for a week. And like, no one else is going to be allowed at the shop and we're just going to hang out and, and whack on steel.
0: Well, we're not going to we're not going to say the dates of that or uh, anything here, so. <laughs> yeah. You'll have randos showing up at your shop yeah. like me. <laughs> so, yeah. no, that's super cool. And that's that's the stuff that was happening back in the 90s and the 2000s that that we were doing right back in those days. I mean, it was it was the guys of that era. Yeah. That, yeah. that were getting together and instead of hiding what they were doing, they were feeding off of each other. So my guess is, is what comes out of that uh, in the next couple of years would will be some wild and crazy shit.
1: I'm really looking forward to it. I, yeah, it'll be the, all of those guys are doing like cutting edge pattern welding, which is like a weird thing to say, but they're all all of their minds work differently about it, and they are all spectacular. So I'm yeah. like, low, I'm well, low man on the totem pole is actually not technically correct, but yeah. I'm basically going to be observing, placing
0: and yourself on the totem pole is the wrong thing to do. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. I'm watching the guy or I'm, I'm, I'm watching the, the totem pole from, from the side. Yeah. You're putting the totem pole back. in your yard. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that, but uh, yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. Honestly, we've been having conversations like this for years now. When I stop through, it's just yeah. Now
0: we get to record it. <laughs> well, we'll do more of these for sure. Um I got other stuff I want to cover with you at at, at other times. So awesome. super stoked to see what you got going. Um I'm glad your dad's doing better. Thank you. Um what's your what's your YouTube channel?
1: Mine's just Will Stelter for both YouTube and Instagram. So,
0: okay. Yeah. Awesome. And I think TikTok is the worst, so I don't really use it. <laughs> yeah. I heard TikTok might be I was li- the podcast I was listening to yesterday actually said that they think that uh one of these other platforms might buy TikTok, but like there's there's like a jockeying for position of like what's going to be the social media that yeah. everybody like gravitates towards. Like it seems like there's a lot of them that are like fighting it out. What, what,
1: what I've seen happen in the last couple of years, and I'm, I'm sure if, as soon as we think about it, uh, they basically, every social media platform is kind of just morphing into the same thing. We're like, they all, st- they all used to be very different and now they all kind of do the same thing.
0: And, and that's exactly what this podcast was saying, that they're all, which is going to lend more and more towards one of them, depending on how they run their algorithms and how they encourage people to be on their platform, how, if there's not much difference in them, yeah. then one's going to probably end up like swallowing the other ones. Yeah. And that makes sense. Yeah. I
1: think that TikTok is, oh, we have a whole other conversation. There. Yeah. China. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All T- right, buddy. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Thanks Thanks for for having me. All right.